Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Mark Dunlight. Today we are doing a review of peace issues in 2023 as part of our two weeks of holiday specials. Unfortunately, 2023 was not a good year for peace. Uh, Hudson Mohawk Magazine does a peace segment each Wednesday with a focus on highlighting the work of local peace activists. I want to thank Marina Mann, Mary Finneran, and especially John Amidon for their ongoing assistance with the weekly segment. And I want to express my appreciation to Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, Professor Stephen Zunez of the University of San Francisco, David Swanson of World Beyond War, Dan Wilcox of Veterans for Peace, Mabel Leon of many groups, Passes for Peace, and Joseph Gershom of Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security for their willingness over the decades to share their insights. The two main peace issues we covered this year were the ongoing war in Ukraine and the conflict in Gaza and Israel. In 2023, the Ukraine war entered the second year. It has largely stalemated on the ground, primarily in eastern Ukraine, with increasing deaths and other injuries by both Ukrainians and Russian soldiers. Most American peace groups are calling for a ceasefire to try to stem the ongoing casualties. Some, however, do argue against a ceasefire out of a fear that would lock into place Russia's occupation of eastern Ukraine. The counter-argument is that the military fight has failed to dislodge Russia, and a ceasefire would give an opportunity for diplomacy to reach a long-term agreement while halting the horrific level of killing and destruction. While most groups have condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they also acknowledged that for decades the U.S. had provoked Russia by expanding NATO to its doorstep, describing it as a U.S. proxy war against Russia. A few peace groups have supported Russia since they see the United States as the biggest culprit in promoting the war. There are also some peace activists who argue that Ukraine is engaged in a legitimate war of self-defense and self-determination and are deserving of support, including arms from the United States and NATO. However, most peace groups in the United States oppose sending more arms as it just continues the killings. We have two segments on Ukraine. The first centers around a visit by Medea Benjamin, a co-founder of Code Pink, to the area, which generated protests from Ukrainian solidarity groups, even though Medea had condemned the Russian invasion. The second segment is with local peace activist Marina Mann, as she discusses why women against war and others support a ceasefire. The second major peace issue was the October 7th attacks on Israel by Hamas and the resultant leveling of Gaza by the Israeli Defense Forces. Hamas launched an assault into Israel to attack several military bases and to capture hostages in an effort to press for the release of thousands of Palestinians held in Israeli prisons. Uh, they were also, of course, opposed to the decades of treating the uh, occupied territories as a little bit more than an open prison. That assault led to more than 1,200 deaths, many of them civilians, though it does appear that at least some were killed by Israeli forces to prevent them from becoming hostages. Many have referred to this as Israelis 
9-11 moment. Many of the claims made by Israel and the United States uh, about the attacks, such as beheading of babies and massive rapes, have proven to be untrue. In response, the Israeli government launched an all-out assault on Gaza, claiming that in self-defense it seeks to eliminate Hamas. They have, however, killed more than 20,000 Palestinians, most of whom are civilians and children. Legal experts and others have accused Israel of war crimes amounting to genocide. While American politicians and the corporate media have largely offered carte blanche support to the Israeli uh, response, massive protests unprecedented in the United States have broken out in our country and across the globe, including particularly here in the Capital District. While both major parties, starting with President Biden and Governor Hochul, have stated unwavering support for Israeli's action, the level of support in the United States for Palestinians is at an unprecedented level. Most striking has been the number of Jewish individuals and groups, starting with Jewish Voice of Peace, who have spoken out both against Zionism and against the genocide, many saying they had promised their relatives who had suffered from the Holocaust that they would never again be silent in opposing similar behavior. Of the many segments that have aired on HMN, we have selected two. One has several speakers urging the Albany City Council to adopt a resolution in favor of ceasefire. The second is an interview I did with journalist Chris Hedges before his December 6th speech at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. The final segment is on the ongoing effort to end nuclear weapons. The threat of nuclear war has been particularly pronounced in the Russian-Ukrainian war. So for our first segment, peace activist uh, Medea Benjamin spoke about the Ukraine war at the First Unitarian Church in Albany on Monday, April 17th. Her talk prompted a lively debate about how to best achieve peace in Ukraine, including the role of the United States in Russia. Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin has been speaking in the Capital District about the war in Ukraine since Sunday, April 16th. Women Against War is hosting Medea's tour in the capital region. Medea and Code Pink are among many peace groups calling for a ceasefire in Ukraine. While she has been outspoken that it was illegal for Russia to have invaded Ukraine, she also recognizes that the United States and NATO for decades took steps that they knew would provoke Russia. Code Pink opposes the sending of tens of billions of dollars uh, in United States weapons to arm Ukraine to fight the Russian invaders. Ukraine Solidarity Capital District has been protesting at Medea's speeches, arguing that she primarily blames the United States rather than Russia for the current war. They oppose a ceasefire that does not require Russia to depart from Ukrainian territory. I attended Medea's speech on Monday, April 17th at the First Unitarian Church in Albany. We hear first from Larry Whitner with the Ukraine Solidarity, uh, then Martin Manley, who was part of a group that was uh, calling for Biden to make peace with Cuba. And we finish up with Joe Lombardo of the United Anti-War Coalition and Medea Benjamin. Uh, so Larry, what are some of the points you wanna make? Medea should, should uh, support the notion that uh, uh, there's been a Russian aggression, and that means that uh, the Russians should, should uh, depart from uh, Ukraine, 
and not only uh, cease their war there, but uh, cease the occupation and annexation of that land. How would you pull, how would you make that occur at this point? Uh, well, I think we have to bring uh, public pressure, international pressure on the Russian government so it understands that's not acceptable uh, behavior. And I don't think we do that by uh, placing uh, most of the blame on the United States uh, for the Russian invasion. Um, the uh, Putin regime uh, chose that, that, uh, that war, um, and it's, it's therefore uh, responsible for it. Uh, I think there, there can certainly be a, a, a peace settlement and negotiations, but uh, those should be along the lines of uh, Ukraine's um, uh, independence and its uh, territorial integrity. Medea would argue that uh, Russia was wrong to illegally invaded uh, the Ukraine. At the same time, she would say, you know, it's decades of uh, provocation by the United States. Do, do you use this as a proxy war, even though the Ukraine obviously wants, you know, Russia out of their country? Well, I don't think it's a, a, a proxy war. I think there have been uh, tensions between the United States or, or the U.S. government and, and the uh, Russian government, and uh, before that, the U.S. government and the uh, Soviet Union. But those don't have to lead to war. Uh, and I don't think the U.S. government uh, is looking for a, a war with Russia or desires one, or for that matter, that the Russian government uh, desires one with the United States. And I think it'd be much uh, 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 simpler and would lose uh, far uh, fewer lives and have uh, far less disruption if the Russians simply agreed to get out and they, they uh, discuss things uh, rationally uh, through diplomacy with the United States and resolve their differences thereby. Is there anything the Biden administration can do at this point to bring uh, peace to conflict? Well, I'd like to see it move toward peace and I think that will be uh, a matter, though, of a, a, a settlement uh, between Ukraine and, uh, and Russia. And I don't think that the United States uh, government should force a, a, a settlement, should foist a, a settlement, uh, for that matter, on the Ukrainian government. Thank you, Larry Winter. So on the inside at the Unitarian Church at Medea's speech, we see some postcards to President Biden about Cuba. So we uh, grabbed Martin Manley. Martin, what, what's going on with Cuba and the Biden administration? Well, the problem here is that the Biden administration has maintained the level of sanctions, for the most part, that were imposed under the previous Trump administration. So despite having promised uh, an improvement in relations with Cuba during his election campaign, Biden has failed to do so. Is there any indication he'll reverse that position? You know, obviously, American politicians get very concerned about the so-called vote in Florida. That is exactly the problem. And because Florida is more or less a swing state, that's a strong disincentive to someone like Biden, who has his finger in the wind, like all capitalist politicians, checking to see which way it's blowing. Thank you, Martin Manley. Uh, we next catch up with uh, Joe Lombardo, United National um, Anti-War Coalition, also involved Bethlehem's Neighbors of Peace at the Medea Benjamin event. Joe, what's your present uh, assessment of what's going on uh, in the uh, Ukraine, and particularly what responsibility is Russia versus United States playing in this situation? Well, I, think, I don't think things have changed too much. We've gone through the winter where there's 
some people call it a stalemate, but there's really been lots of deaths in, during this winter, especially in Bakhmut and some of the areas around Donbass where the main fighting is, uh, is taking place. Um, uh, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed and the war has to stop. Well, how, how do you stop the war, you know, at this point? And is this a proxy war between the United States and Russia? Yes, this is definitely a proxy war. I think the United States and NATO have the main responsibility for what has happened there. Um, there's nuclear weapons that are now surrounding uh, Russia. They wanted Ukraine so they could put more nuclear weapons in there. And just like the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, Russia feels very threatened by that. They feel threatened by the right-wing forces and the Nazis that are in Ukraine. And they are there, even though they're not talked about much, but they're, they're there in large numbers. Uh, the only way to peace is going to be eventually some kind of peace treaty. There's been attempts to make peace treaties um, that Russia has initiated, and the United States has refused to um, be part of them and refused to let Ukraine be part of them. So the war is going to go on, and I think the United States wants to have it go on to deplete Russia as much as possible, and they're willing to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. A couple of weeks ago, China seemed like they were making some push to come up with some type of peace settlement. What's happened to the China initiative? Well, the United States just ruled it out of hand. They don't really want peace in, in Ukraine, and that's the problem. If you want peace, you've got to have both sides wanting peace. Um, and uh, so they they didn't even consider um, the, the China peace accord. They want the only basis for a peace accord is for Russia to totally retreat, totally um, give up, and uh, Russia's not willing to do that. Thank you, Joe Lombardo. So next we uh, talk with Medea Benjamin. Medea, there's been some concerns raised by the Ukraine Solidarity Committee that you're perhaps a little bit uh, too pro-Russian and not critical enough of the United States. Uh, I'm sorry, not critical enough of Russia for having invaded the um, Ukraine. What's your response to what they've been saying? Well, as I've told them, if I lived in Russia, I'm pretty sure I would be in prison because I would be protesting this war. But I'm not in Russia. I'm here in the United States. And so my job is to focus on my government. And what I see my government doing is sabotaging negotiations, including now around China, when China has a proposal that both uh, the, the Russians and the Ukrainians have looked favorably upon. The U.S. comes out and says, no, that's a terrible idea. We don't want the Chinese to do this. So um, I think, you know, their perspective is uh, not the same as mine. Uh, and I find it strange because when I ask them, well, where do you see this leading? They actually think there's going to be victory on the battlefield for Ukraine, meaning take back all of Crimea and Donbass. And I say, I just don't think that's going to happen. Neither do the military documents that were leaked recently think that's going to happen. And uh, all that's going to happen is more people will get killed until finally there are peace talks that will set up pretty much the same parameters as they would if they started today. And I understand you have a new book out. This is a book tour. Where can, what's the name of the book and where can people get a copy of it? It's called War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. And they can get it from uh, codepink.org. The publisher is OR Books. And of course, you can always get it from Amazon. You can find my prior interviews with Medea, as well as Ukraine Solidarity, on mediasanctuary.org using the search function. In our second segment, Marina Mann of Women Against War and Grannies of Peace discuss why they have called for the United States to support a ceasefire in the Ukraine. 
Uh, we're joined by Marina Mann, who's with many local peace groups, Women Against the War, Pathways to Peace, and the ever-present uh, Grannies for Peace. And I uh, saw uh, Marine recently being covered, uh, participating at, uh, I guess, the Bethlehem's Neighbors for Peace event as part of the United uh, National Anti-War Coalition uh, Day of Action around calling for peace and then the war in the Ukraine. So we thought we'd ask uh, Marina on to explain, you know, what are some of the points that, you know, your groups and Code Pink have been raising about, you know, how do we stop this uh, brutal uh, war that's taking place in the Ukraine? Well, good morning, Mark. Thanks for um, asking me to uh, to share some thoughts. Uh, basically, I think it's really important to start out saying that none of us, um, as part of the Pathways uh, for Peace Committee of Women Against War, consider ourselves historical geo political experts on the situation in U Ukraine. And we understand that the situation is incredibly complex, both historically and um, in terms of geopolitical history or, or energies. However, it feels that it is imperative given the nature of this war um, and the what really looks like what could be an endless war and the absolute um, dangers and destruction um, that are involved that we as uh, a people push our government to do everything in its power to work for negotiations. Again, we understand the complexity of that, but there really seems to be no other energy that um, we should be um, arguing for. And um, just to quote the Emir of Qatar, I think he, you know, he basically says what uh, in the UN, what, he, what we're feeling, we're fully aware of the complexities of the conflict and the international and global dimension to the crisis. However, we still call for an immediate ceasefire and peaceful settlement because this is ultimately what will happen regardless of how long this conflict will go on, but perpetuating the crisis will not change this result. It will only increase the number of casualties, the incredible suffering, and will increase the disastrous repercussions on Europe, Russia, and the global economy. So that's where we as a Pathways for Peace Committee and Grannies for Peace also um, in Women Against War stand and what we are standing for whenever we uh, take a public uh, stance on this issue of Ukraine. Since, you know, we are, you know, in America, um, how do we push, you know, the Biden administration and Congress um, to help accomplish peace uh, in the Ukraine? Well, Again, because there seems to be such a will to war. I mean, it's very discouraging when you hear uh, in the last couple of days that, yes, we'll be sending Abram tanks um, to, you know, that we seem hell bent on, on uh, continuing um, and seeing the military uh, uh, solution as the only solution. Uh, so I guess, you know, we need to be, uh, first of all, informing ourselves and we need to be really honing the arguments for why negotiations are um, absolutely important. And we need to be sharing those with each other as citizens and also um, with our Congress people. Um, Code Pink has, uh, Medea Benjamin um, of Code Pink um, recently published a book, The War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless War. She co-authored it with Nicholas Davies. Um, and and Code, so Code Pink has been doing a lot of focusing on this issue of, um, of the war in Ukraine, you know, looking at it historically, but also trying to hone again the arguments for why we have to um, to push our government towards you know working for ceasefire and they've honed eight I think what are really strong arguments in which I know um, my uh, compatriots in the Pathways for Peace Committee and Grannies 
for Peace agree with. So I was wondering if I could um, share those arguments at least briefly, Mark, and uh, then encourage Okay, people. go ahead, share. Okay, go to Code Pink to, to flesh these out. First of all, and probably penultimately, the death, sovereign, destruction, dislocation, the infrastructure collapse, thinking about people in winter cold. I mean, those things that pull on our heartstrings, the economic devastation, this can't go on. And if it continues to go on, all it gets is more profoundly horrific. So that's their first argument and probably the penultimate one again. Um, Two, that many military experts uh, believe that neither side can or will achieve a decisive military victory. And they quote a number of uh, military experts, including um, uh, the UK's military chief of staff, who says without absolutely a a horrific increased um, level of destruction and casualty, uh, there will be no military solution. And um, they quote the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark um, um, Millet, Millet, and and they and they uh, quote many French and German military experts. So basically, that there will be no military solution ultimately. Um, That their third argument is that the Republicans in Congress more and more grow uh, restive in terms of, of supporting the war um, and with more military aid, more money, more endless um, expenditure of resources that we need in this country desperately. And so that that support will erode. And so this is a good moment for um, us to look at negotiations as the only ultimate solution. Um, they, uh, their fourth argument is that the impact on Europe, it, the skyrocketing, skyrocketing inflation, the crippling squeeze on energy supplies, that there's a growing war weariness and um, polls in Europe indicate that uh, people are more and more growing um, disenchanted with this war or experiencing what the Germans call war weariness. And so again, um, there's an energy there in Europe to sue for um, renewed efforts for diplomatic solution and that we should join that energy. They also argue that um, the UN General Assembly, uh, there's 66 world leaders who are on record, who have argued for peace talks, so that there's this global energy towards negotiation and to ending the, the horror of, of uh, the military um, solution that we seem to have what is our, our only one. Um, they argue also um, for the environmental impact, that it's horrific, it, it can't go on, it just um, adds to the, the challenges of climate change um, and included in that is the, uh, the danger of radioactive release from nuclear power plants. They say the North Stream pipeline sabotage created a methane emission that's equal to a million cars uh, in a year. At some uh, point, the sanctions on uh, Russia energy triggered justification for, for further rather than less development of the fossil fuel in, uh, industry. So all of the crying out for solution, climate change issues are being um, acerbated um, and and uh, increased because of this war in Ukraine, and and therefore uh, they argue again that's a strong reason why we have to move towards negotiation. Um, they also talk about their seventh reason is the global impact economically is is um, severe, uh, and in in addition to the effect on Europe, um, we're robbing the investment um, that we need to make and to eradicate poverty, the economic inequality in the world, the impact of climate change, that um, 
the global economic effect of this war is untenable and unsustainable and just moves us backwards in, in a point where we need to be moving forward on, on solution to these uh, problems that we could solve if we invested and had the will um, that we seem to have for war in Ukraine, if we could in, invest that in peace and, and um, sustainability. And then finally, and perhaps powerfully, they argue that the danger of nuclear war, along with many other people who are arguing this between the world's two greatest, greatest nuclear powers is real. There is an existential danger that if Russia was is uh, back to the wall in terms of, of losing this war in terms of a military um, solution would in fact revert to, or some accidental um, event could move us to a nuclear conflagration. The two-part question, some people in the United States support the right, the United States military to send weapons to Ukraine, uh, the right of defense. Uh, how do you respond to that? And then also if people want to get more information, how can they do this in 30 seconds? There are all kinds of geopolitical arguments in uh, various sides, but the, the absolute imperative is that the only answer will be, in the end, negotiations, and we have to move towards that. And Mark, I'd like to say that uh, uh, our Pathways to Peace Committee is inviting Medea Benjamin in April to speak in the area. She will be here for three days, speaking at various colleges. There will be public forums. We'll be giving information on that. And in addition, we'll be standing on the corner on February 14th on Wolf Road and Central Avenue, again, to say this as Grannies for Peace. There has to be negotiations. We have to move towards peace. This can't continue as it is. Well, thank you very much, Marina Mon, Women Against War. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P, 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P, 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P, 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. There have been numerous peace rallies in the capital district calling for a halt to the genocide taking place in Gaza. There have also been events supporting the actions of Israel, though they've been far fewer and less publicized. One flashpoint locally was a forum organized by Bethlehem Neighbors of Peace with a leading Israeli activist who supports uh, the Palestinians. And this led to calls by Israeli supporters to block the forum and eventually led to the Bethlehem Library Board to ban the peace group for a year. You can listen to the many segments produced by Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Gaza-Palestinian-Israel situation by going to mediasanctuary.org and typing in Gaza in the search engine. Our first segment on the um, Gaza situation was on a December 4th hearing at the Albany City Council on a resolution for a ceasefire. On Monday, December 4th, during a public comment period at the Albany Common Council meeting, a number of residents spoke in favor of a resolution pending before the council, calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and Israel. The council will vote on the resolution at a following meeting. We hear from four speakers, former city council member Barbara Smith, 
two members of Jewish Voice for Peace, Mark Missler and Eva Agreev, and Miss Jamel, an immigrant from India. My name is Barbara Smith. I'm here to speak this evening about the upcoming resolution for a ceasefire in Israel and Gaza. There are times in history when people have to take a stand. This is one of those times. Uh, the Albany Common Council has an opportunity to uh, speak out and also to speak to the federal government that has been sending billions of dollars of funding to Israel for decades. And now we see the extreme and egregious results of that kind of policy. There are many common consuls who have passed such resolutions. Among them are Akron, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, Ypsilanti, Michigan, uh, Detroit, Michigan, Providence, Rhode Island, Seattle, Washington, Hamtramck, Michigan, Dearborn, Michigan, Richmond, California, Wilmington, Delaware, and just last week, Oakland, California. As I said, this is a time for us to speak out and uh, because we are opposed to uh, any kind of uh, human uh, destruction, particularly the destruction of human life, it is our time to speak out. Uh, we've had these opportunities in the past in history and sometimes we've failed and sometimes we have succeeded in taking the right stance. The Holocaust, the war in Vietnam, apartheid in South Africa. What is, this, what is happening in Gaza right now is one of those times. This is not an anti-Semitic stance. I just thought I would share with you a book. The book is called Yours in Struggle, Three Feminist Perspectives on Anti-Semitism and Racism. I'm a co-author. So in 1984, I was doing what many people still will not do, which is to speak out about anti-Semitism, but I also, of course, speak out about Islamophobia and every other kind of oppression. Good evening, members of the council. My name is Mark Mischler to speak in favor of the upcoming resolution being submitted by council members Romero and Adams uh, in regard to calling for a ceasefire. I'm Jewish. All of my grandparents were born in Eastern Europe and emigrated here in the first decade of the 20th century. Two were from the city of Kishnev in Moldova, the site of one of the most infamous violent anti-Semitic pogroms in the early 20th century. It is my family's community and my family's multiple cultures, the Yiddish-speaking culture of the shtetls and the more intellectual and working-class activist-oriented Jewish culture of the larger cities that the Nazis destroyed or sought to destroy in their genocide in World War II. The lessons from my Jewish heritage, which I was taught and by which I have tried to live my life, are it is because we come from a history of oppression, of being considered outsiders, of being subjected to hateful violence and genocide, that we are compelled to stand up for justice, not just for Jews, but for all who have experienced or are experiencing oppression. I learned early that this history requires me as a Jew and as a human being to join with others in solidarity to work to prevent genocide, war, racial, gender, ethnic, or religious-based hatred, and to fight for the human rights and liberation of all people. 
Uh, my name is Ava Agree. I come on behalf of myself as a member of Albany's Jewish community and on behalf of Albany's chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace to speak in favor of the upcoming resolution for bilateral ceasefire. I felt compelled to speak to you today because of my Judaism. I am the granddaughter of survivors of the Holocaust um, on my father's side and on my mother's side. I am the descendant of Jews who were forced out of their homes in what is now Ukraine and Belarus by violent anti-Semitism. Throughout the history of Zionist movements, throughout the history of the state of Israel, Jewish people have hotly contested the role of Israel as a state in Jewish community and the politics of the Israeli government. Uh, that is abundantly clear if you have followed the news in recent months of the massive outpouring of protests amongst Israeli Jews in Israel contesting the actions of their government. And so I want to start my comments by reiterating that critique of what is happening right now in Gaza should not be misinterpreted as anti-Semitism. Critique is probably the most Jewish thing I can think of. And so I hope and I trust that members of this body will not silence those voices asking for an end in that violence. I know that all of you, as many in this room, have uh, been bombarded with troubling images over the last two months. And yes, I would acknowledge and condemn what happened on October 7th. Um, but as we all know, those images, that violence, has not ceased since October 7th. Uh, as was recently noticed, noted that the UN now reports that over 80% of Palestinians have been bombed out of their homes. Thousands upon thousands of children have been killed. Hospitals have been targeted. Came here today to say this is not representative of my Judaism. It is not representative of our values in the city of Albany of promoting peace, promoting inclusivity, and promoting justice and human rights. Good evening, my name is Mahak Jamil. I'm here tonight to tell you about my own lived experience. I'm not Palestinian, but I am the daughter of parents who lived through the partition of India in 1947. The largest forced human migration in history with over 15 million displaced and upwards of 1 million killed. Much has been documented about that genocide, but the human impact can never fully be captured in history books. I carry the weight of that intergenerational trauma with me every day. I know and deeply feel what it is like to have the sense of displacement embedded in your psyche. It is one thing to read about occupation and another to live it. I was last in Palestine 10 years ago in 2013. I can never forget the feeling of being held at military checkpoints, standing behind metal gates for extended periods of time while my white colleagues breezed through. I can never forget the feeling of being denied access to various sites throughout the West Bank, while again my colleagues were ushered in without question, without hesitation. I carry the weight of that experience every day with me as well. The weight of my responsibility as a privileged, blue passport-toting American to right the wrongs that have brutalized innocent Palestinians well before the gruesome last eight weeks. Gaza is being suffocated. This is indisputable. 
I don't need to rattle off more stats to you. We know we are living through what every accredited international human rights organization has acknowledged as a genocide. Full stop. I wish so badly that term wasn't accurate here, that I was using inflammatory hyperbolic language for dramatic effect. But the reality is we have surpassed original Nakba numbers with some 20,000 Palestinians killed since October. The figures are absolutely astounding. As we have all watched in horror at the atrocities unfolding in Gaza, there has been more salt poured on our wounds. Our representatives have been painfully silent. The support for local Muslim and Palestinian communities shockingly absent. I am not Palestinian, but my Pakistani-American ancestry has taught me we are destroying entire generations here, physically, metaphysically, in Palestine, and beyond. I am not Palestinian, but you don't need to be Palestinian to be appalled as the world makes excuses for acts so blatantly inexcusable as it justifies this catastrophe of historic proportions. You do not need to be Palestinian to know that the oppressor cannot also be the victim. You don't need to be Palestinian to know Israel has far exceeded any conceivable definition of self-defense with its indiscriminate killing and the collective punishment it has unleashed on citizens of the Gaza Strip. You don't need to be Palestinian to feel the anguish of a people not given the, the right to up, live. Man. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Our next segment is an interview I did with Chris Hedges prior to his talk at the Media Sanctuary on Wednesday, December 6, about the genocide in Gaza. Chris Hedges, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and former Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times, you recently posted a phase one of Israel's genocidal campaign on Gaza has ended, with phase two beginning, it will result in even more higher levels of death and destruction. What is Israel trying to accomplish? Well, this is part of the Hundred Year War, as the scholar Rashid Alidi calls it, uh, by a settler colonial project against the Palestinian people, against an indigenous people. So, in terms of intent, nothing has changed since. Uh, the turn of the 20th century, when uh, Jews comprised about 6% of historic Palestine, and then we saw uh, settlers, uh, particularly uh, after the Holocaust, uh, uh, populate Israel. Um, and, uh, and we have had moments, 1948, the Nakba or catastrophe, when the state of Israel was founded, and um, 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed into refugee camps, many of them into Gaza. Uh, and there were a series of massacres by Zionist militias. Then the 1967 war, when about 250,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from historic Palestine and the remaining 22% of the land in Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem that was still occupied or controlled by the indigenous population were taken by uh, Israel. Now, uh, this has always been accompanied by a kind of slow motion, ethnic cleansing, a slow motion a seizure of more and more land, especially in East Jerusalem, uh, but also in the West Bank. Uh, after the election of Hamas in 2006, we saw Gaza sealed off, became the world's largest open-air prison. 
uh, and uh, to periodically keep the Palestinians in Gaza subjugated. Israel launched periodic five or six military operations. Remember, these are operations against a population that does not have an army, a navy, an air force, mechanized units, uh, command and control. Um, it, it's really a misnomer to call it a war. Um, and then, of course, we saw the events on October 7th when Hamas fighters and others broke through the security barrier that surrounds Gaza uh, and kill uh, roughly uh, 250, 300 soldiers, along with civilians. I mean, clearly war crimes and atrocities were committed, uh, and this has given the Netanyahu government, which is the most extremist government in Israel's history, the green light uh, to do what it has always wanted to do, uh, and that is uh, carry out a campaign of massive ethnic cleansing, uh, pushing the Palestinians or destroying the infrastructure, making Gaza uninhabitable, and pushing the 2.3 million Palestinians, the ideally, over the border into the Sinai in Egypt. Now, Egypt and the Arab leaders, despite U.S. pressure, have so far resisted uh, that uh, uh, call for them to accept uh, Palestinian refugees, who we know, of course, would never return. That's the plan. And, and as part of that plan, we're seeing uh, a pounding of Gaza, uh, shelling of Gaza, destruction of Gaza, unlike anything we've seen uh, in decades. I, I mean, I was in the war in Sarajevo. I was based there for the New York Times. We were hit with three to 400 shells a day. Uh, that resulted in about four to five dead a day, two dozen wounded a day. And I don't want to minimize that experience almost 30 years later as I still have nightmares about it. But you compare that with Gaza where hundreds of people are being killed a day, over 6,000 children. And it so gives we, you... we, we have limited time. So let me get another question in. Uh, Hamas is often described as an offshoot of the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood. And many say they were initially promoted by Israel and the United States government as a way to undercut the more secular and socialist leaning Yasser Arafat and the PLO. In its early years, it gained a lot of support among Palestinians, providing social services. What is Hamas like today? What is it seeking to accomplish? And what is its level of support among the average Palestinian? Well, it is quite, it, it is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, it, it was, uh, part of the Israeli strategy to allow Hamas to get support, primarily from Qatar, uh, as a way of dividing the Palestinian leadership. This was Bibi Netanyahu's strategy, didn't work out too well. Uh, what is their level of support? Um, I think their support before this was always problematic. I hadn't been in Gaza for a few years, so things could have changed. But I think after this incursion, and I just came back from Qatar and from Egypt, the level of support, not only among Palestinians, because they are resisting, but throughout the Arab world is very high. How can a less than just peace be accomplished at this point among Palestinians and Israelis? Well, at this point, the only solution is a one-state solution from the river to the sea. That means equal rights for all. The two-state solution is not viable. Number one, Gaza has been destroyed. It's, it's not livable. That's the intent. And number two, there's so much settler uh, and military occupation within the West Bank. Israel now controls about 60% of the West Bank. 
it's not viable. So if there is going to be a lasting peace, it's going to be a secular state where everybody has equal rights, Palestinians and Israelis. Um, the, the level of support for Palestinians, at least in my experience, is significantly higher than it's been in, in previous uh, years, especially among young people. But, uh, you know, certainly the Biden administration continues, at least publicly, to do, you know, carplant support, you know, for whatever the Israeli government is doing, allegedly doing a little bit different behind the scenes. How can the American people at this point change what the government is doing? We have to, the Biden administration is a full partner in this genocide. It knows very well what Israel is doing. That's why it constantly talks about what will happen afterwards. It's call for, you know, protecting civilians. Bibi Netanyahu says they're being careful not to target civilians. Um, is uh, they understand what the military strategy is, and that's to make Gaza uninhabitable and create a reign of terror to push people out. Uh, and of course, they've given them a supplemental military aid package of about $10 billion, or to get $3.8 billion a year uh, in military assistance. Uh, uh, so we've got to support the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement, just as we did in the campaign against the apartheid state of South Africa. That has to come uh, out of popular mobilization. We've seen that. Uh, I've been to several of the demonstrations. It's very heartening because they, they're, I, go to, I went to a lot of the demonstrations against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they tended to be old. They skewed older. These skew younger, uh, both in terms of the crowd and the speakers. Uh, and, and I think that uh, that is driven by two factors. One, uh, this generation, the younger generation, uh, understands how corrupt and compromised the mainstream media is. Uh, and uh, number two, I think they're much more sensitive to the nature of colonial settler projects and how they work. So Chris Hedges will be speaking this Wednesday. You can go to mediasanctuary.org uh, to, to um, reserve your tickets. You know, last comments in the, in the last minute. And do you have any optimism that this is actually going to produce any type of lasting peace or this at some point Israel stops, you know, the, the slaughter, but, you know, nothing really happens to improve the uh, situation for the Palestinians? No, I, I think that I know Netanyahu and, and some of the figures who all come out of the Marikahana movement. He was this radical, racist, kind of Jewish fascist rabbi. No, their goal, and they've been quite uh, upfront about it for years, is at cleansing. I think when they finish with Gaza, they will try and turn on the West Bank, which is why the Jordanian army has moved its armed forces up along the border uh, between Israel and the West Bank to prevent that from happening. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Chris, if people want to read more of your stuff, you have a web page people can look at? It's all, everything comes out at chrishedges.substack.com. Our last segment focuses on the issue of nuclear disarmament. It is estimated that there are currently about 12,500 nuclear warheads around the world. Uh, the United States and Russia have the largest, uh, each 10 times larger than the 410 China has. Other countries with nuclear weapons are France, United Kingdom, Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea. 
The threat of nuclear war has greatly increased in the last few years, starting with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Russia has not ruled out the possibility of using nuclear weapons to defend itself if needed, such as if the United States and NATO were to further uh, join the conflict. Uh, the United States under President Obama launched a campaign to invest more than a trillion dollars to upgrade its nuclear arsenal. We had a number of segments in 2023 on nuclear disarmament, including several with John and on. On July 11th and 12th, Veterans of Peace sponsored a visit by the Golden Rule sailboat to the Capital District. Uh, the Golden Rule uh, had been the peace boat uh, that led uh, 65 years ago to the international treaty to ban nuclear weapons uh, testing. And they sailed uh, this year to promote ratifications of the uh, treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which has been signed by 122 nations, um, but not by the United States or the other nuclear uh, powers. Uh, we include here the discussion I had with Joseph Gerson of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. Uh, September 26th uh, was the UN International Day for the complete eliminations of nuclear weapons. We're joined by Joseph Gerson, uh, who runs the uh, Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. And somehow I didn't catch the mainstream media coverage, but on September 26th, uh, was the UN uh, International Day for the Complete Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. So, uh, Joseph, what what was this day all about? So, this, this kind of grew out of international frustration over the failure of the nuclear powers to fulfill their treaty obligation under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to engage in good faith negotiations for the complete elimination of their nuclear arsenals. Uh, so, what you've had building over time been demands from the non-nuclear nations you know, for, for abolition. So this day was declared at the United Nations by the General Assembly uh, in 2013, and it's uh, recognized with different events uh, happening internationally as a way to call attention to the continuing dangers, which in fact have increased of nuclear war uh, and, the, uh, and the urgency, the need uh, to move to uh, eliminate the world's nuclear arsenals. I, we were reminded of this recently in the Oppenheimer movie. Now, I, I noticed in some of the material that was uh, distributed for this day that, in fact, the uh, all the existing uh, nuclear powers, and there's quite a few of them, um, are not disarming. They go in the opposite direction. They are so-called modernizing or expanding their nuclear arsenals. But one thing I also forgot was that the United uh, States does apparently deploy some nuclear weapons uh, with, you know, NATO countries. And I remember the Green Party in the early 80s in, in which Germany arose partly in opposition to Reagan trying to deploy first strike cruise missiles into Germany. And since Germany technically was a colony of the Allied powers in Russia at that point, you know, they didn't actually have any say as to whether or not they're going to have nuclear weapons. So we seem to be going the opposite direction. We're actually, you know, increasing the investment in nuclear weapons at the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, we need to get people's attention to the reality that, um, uh, we're facing increasing nuclear dangers. I was, uh, in a, webinar the, yesterday with a, a, a senior figure in, in Russia from their uh, National Security Council. Uh, and he was uh, you know, very, very clear uh, that we haven't faced such dangers since 1962 at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we have, on the one hand, as you've mentioned, 
uh, we have the uh, now the, the deployment of new uh, U.S. nuclear weapons to six countries, uh, six NATO nations. The Russians are moving their uh, missiles to Belarus. And as we all know, uh, Putin and Medvedev have, have made their nuclear threats. And, and, and they're really quite real, especially in relationship to Crimea. And then we have the dangers in, in Asia Pacific uh, with the growing confrontations over Taiwan, uh, now in the Philippines and the South China Sea. Uh, and we have other dangers that uh, only tangentially engage the United States, for example, India and, and Pakistan. Uh, we also have the what seems to be movement toward uh, you know a deal in the Middle East, uh, which would be giving which will include the, the, the sale, the, the delivery of U.S. nuclear technologies to Saudi Arabia. So we need to understand the urgency of the moment, just as we did in the 1980s, uh, when we built international movements to uh, uh, prevent the deployment of those crews, the Pershings and, and the Russian SS-20s. Now, now, in response to that movement in, in the 1980s, you actually had the situation where Reagan and Gorbachev, rather than negotiating with each other, would unilaterally make announcements that they were cutting back on certain nuclear weapons, and it became this back and forth. Any indication that the Biden administration is willing to take, you know, that type of uh, actions? Well, in this circumstance, I have to say that while we need to oppose the almost $2 trillion investment in, in the, the, the creation of a U.S. nuclear arsenal for the 21st century, uh, that the Russians have a lot, a lot of blame to carry this time around as well. Uh, you know, beginning with the Bush administration, uh, second Bush administration, we got rid of the ABM treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which opened the way for for an arms race that had been basically a foundation of the international arms control uh, um, architecture. Uh, but the reality is now with the Ukraine war, uh, Russia has uh, pulled out of the um, uh, new, essentially the New START agreement, the um, Open Skies Treaty, uh, and internationally, both in relationship to the U.S. and Russia, U.S. and China, uh, arms control negotiations are, are non-existent. Uh, we have a situation of increasing uh, uh, uncertainty about what's called strategic stability uh, and the need to uh, be pressing for re-engagement of diplomacy on all sides. And that requires, I think, resolution of the Ukraine war uh, based on, I think, will have to be a dirty, a dirty deal, uh, but which stops the fighting uh, and allows for um, uh, recreation of a of, of diplomacy and, and recreation of a of a European security environment. Now, just reading some of your materials, one of the things that was highlighted was, uh, I think, Article Six of the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Why is that important? What could that do? Well, that's even more important than the ABM Treaty. Uh, this was uh, the treaty negotiated, what, about 1970 or, or so. Um, and it, it has it stands on three three pillars. Uh, on the one hand, the nuclear powers uh, uh, recognized or granted, I think, in fault in the, in the uh, treaty, uh, that non-nuclear weapon states had the right to uh, develop and, and, and promote uh, nuclear power for peaceful purposes. And that, of course, has provided... Uh, both a, a vehicle for proliferation, but also we don't know how to deal with the with the poisons and the waste or even possible meltdowns of, of nuclear powers. Uh, but in exchange, the existing nuclear powers at the time uh, committed to, in Article 6, 
to engage in good faith negotiations for the complete elimination of their nuclear arsenals. And what we've seen over the years is a dogged refusal uh, to uh, implement uh, Article 6. Uh, in fact, as you noted know, before, all the nuclear powers are either expanding or modernizing their, their nuclear arsenals. Uh, and in response, uh, you know, since the, the declaration of the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons, uh, we've had the negotiation in 2017 of an international treaty called the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, designed to outlaw the existence, the, the, the uh, uh, possession of nuclear weapons, uh, now ratified by, I think, what, 69 countries, uh, nearly 100 have signed it, uh, but the nuclear powers are resisting. So, But the TPNW, the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, is now serving as the um, principal counterweight uh, to internationally and diplomatically uh, to, to the nuclear weapon states. So we only have two minutes left, so I'm going to give you a two-part question and you can answer whatever you have time for. One is Hollywood, you know, constantly puts out movies and shows about the dangers of black market nuclear weapon. Um, you know, so how how real is that concern? And then also understand there's some meeting coming up on November 27th on the uh, Treaty of the uh, Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we have multiple dangers in terms of proliferation. Uh, the danger is that uh, any kinds of, of, of radioactive material could be used to create what's called a dirty bomb. Uh, you don't have to have even a Hiroshima-type explosion, uh, but one that perhaps would spread uh, radioactive material, say, in Wall Street um, over, say, a you know several hundred foot radius, which shut down a major part of the U.S. economy. Um, and you know, we have the, the I just read a, a really terrible paper uh, which was um, uh, basically arguing for preparations for tactical nuclear war uh, over Taiwan. So, so these are very, very real, real dangers. Uh, in terms of the the meeting you referred to at the end of November, uh, the first meeting of the so-called parties to the treaty was held last year, and that provided a way to um, uh, both promote the the treaty for new countries to sign and to begin to put some of the implementation in place. U.S. Uh, has not signed it? No, the, the U.S. has not signed it. It, has, it has opposed it. It has uh, exercised uh, you know, lobbying and pressure on global South nations to prevent them from signing on. Uh, you know, the reality is that U.S. nuclear weapons basically serve as the foundation of the U.S. empire. Uh, you know, we've prepared and threatened to initiate nuclear war at least 30 times. Joseph Gerson, the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. This is And that's our show. We hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Mark Dunley. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. 